Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, as we continue on, we're going to be talking about, speaking about the reluctant warrior, the reluctant warrior this morning. George Washington, our first president, Dwight Eisenhower, the United States in both world wars, history is full of reluctant warriors and leaders. They are reluctant for many reasons. Shyness, lack of conviction, a lack of self-esteem, lack of self-confidence, or just a desire not to be put in the limelight. What is interesting is is that many times these men and women turn out to be some of our greatest leaders. They typically are not driven by personal ambition, selfish promotion, or individual glory. When called upon, they eventually take up the mantle and complete their duty with distinction. We need more men and women in this day and age to step up and lead. As we make our way through the book of Judges there in the Old Testament, God continues to choose to use flawed, sinful men and women to accomplish his purposes and will, which seems just so odd to you and I. We usually think of our heroes of the faith, of those that are pastors, leaders, warriors, so on and so forth, for the cause of Christ to be these sinless perfection. You know, these these people that come straight out of Hollywood casting and they, they, they are totally uh, perfect in each and every way. We struggle when we find our leaders, our heroes, start to fall away or be accused of sin or, or exposing some type of flaw. But these are the type of people that God uses time and time again in Scripture. Last week, Yahweh used the dynamic duel of Deborah and Barak to deliver Israel from the hands of their enemies with the help of a surprise guest who extinguishes the life of a feared general with a hammer and a tent peg. Time and time again, God uses the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary. In today's passage, we're introduced to Gideon, a reluctant warrior who is hiding up in the hills, threshing out his wheat to avoid an enemy attack or enemy theft. Now, we're going to take some time this week and next week to examine his life and adventures in two different parts. Today, we're going to look at his calling and commission. So with that, Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it'll be here on the monitor. But again, you also have your Bible as we will look through them. We read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no substance in Israel and no sheep or oxen or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. 
And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord Father. We thank you for this scripture. It's very old, very ancient. But again, this has a purpose for us this morning. So as we come now 6,000 years or so, maybe 4,000 years or so later, help us to understand what does this mean for us today? How is this profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? Thank you for this book. Let us open it up with fresh eyes. Let us hear and let us respond to the Holy Spirit's work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the setting is after 40 years of peace and safety. We turn to Genesis chapter, or Judges chapter 6. I think we do have something here on the monitor at all. Yeah, I wanted to see again this after years of peace and safety. We turn to Judges chapter 6 to read an old and familiar tune as Israel once again repeats the cycle of rebellion, discipline, repentance, and deliverance. And as we work our way through Judges, we see this time and time again. And this should not surprise us because if we just read Numbers and Leviticus, we see the same thing happen as their parents were in the wilderness. And it should not surprise us because if we just look through the annals of history, we would see this time and time again as God's people continually find this cycle. This time Yahweh sends Midian along with Amalek to serve his purposes in discipling or discipline and discipling the 12 tribes for their disobedience. Midian is actually the step-cousin of the Hebrew children as they both share Abraham as their father. The Midianites are ancestors of Abraham and his wife Keturah, whom he married after Sarah's death. As you can see from the map here on the monitor, the territory of the tribe is located principally in the desert north of the Arabian Peninsula. You see there Midian down in the bottom, uh, the bottom right there, and then you see Amlok there in the middle and the people of the east are a little bit off screen, but you'll see that's where the people in those days were. There's, Mount, there's the Sinai Peninsula, the Red Sea, so on and so forth. This is the place that Moses went when he fled from Pharaoh, met his wife, and spent 40 years as a shepherd. These people were mainly nomads that traveled the desert with their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys moving around because there was not a, really a place to do agriculture and things of that nature. It was a harsh land. They were a constant thorn in the side of Israel, particularly in being seduced into immorality and uh, idolatry through their women, as we saw in Numbers. Because of this, Moses was instructed by God to strike them down. However, 200 years after that, they had been at once grown in strength and were used by God to oppress his people and to drive them into repentance. The second nation was Amalek, who comes from the lineage of Esau, the son of Isaac, again, the son of, of Abraham, again, making them distant cousins of the Israelites. They were a warlike nation that allied with various nations to continually harass Israel over the years until King David finally defeated them, and then years later were finally annihilated by David's grandson, Hezekiah, great-great-grandson. Now, the writer of Judges notes that they oppressed Israel for seven years. Now, it doesn't seem like they actually took over the land as some of the other oppressors of Israel did. What they would do is they would go back to their land, but every harvest they would invade and steal all their food and some of their oxen and so on and so forth. As nomads who lived in a desert land, they were not able to grow crops. So they relied on conquest to provide food for their people. 
Their constant attack left Israel with no substance, no sheep, no oxen or donkeys of their own. Their, their attacks were disguised as complete, as locusts who would come and just devastate a crop or a land with an uncountable number of warriors that laid waste to the land, leaving the Hebrew tribes with nothing to sustain themselves. Israel, as we read here, had resorted to hiding their animals and planting in the hills, the mountains, and the hideaways of caves to protect their food source, making it difficult for them to be found. Eventually, after seven years, they repented and cried out to the Lord who sent a verse or sent a prophet, a prophet in verse 7. In verse 7, Yahweh reminds his people of his covenant. He promises to, uh, in the promise to their forefathers. He reminds them of his, last power, of his past pardon and power and providence in releasing them from their slavery in Egypt and from Pharaoh and giving them the land of the Canaanites as their inheritance. He reiterates that he has not abandoned his covenant or promises and that if they repent and obey him, he will once again deliver them from their oppression. He states that their fears are unfounded as he is the sovereign Lord of all things. Now in verse 11, as we continue on, we are introduced to Gideon. The man that God is going to call and commission to deliver the 12 tribes. He is the fourth or fifth judge, depending on if you count Shamgar. Some do, some don't. And he's most known for requesting divine signs before agreeing to fight and serve with only any, and, and with fighting with only 300 men. He's also known as Drubable. Theologians Fee and Stewart notes that Gideon is prayed as fearful and diffident. Obedient, but doubting. J. Todd, looking on the monitor here, writes this. He says, Gideon represents a turning point in judges with regard to the equality or the quality of the judges. While the judges before Gideon were presented in a positive light, those that follow are not. Gideon is portrayed in a positive light at times and a negative light at other times. What is interesting in this passage is that Jesus makes another pre-incarnate appearance in commissioning Gideon in verse 12. Let's read that together. Chapter 6, look with me at verse 12. And it says, as he was there beating out wheat, hiding it from the Midianites, in verse 12, we read this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, here we see an appearance of Christ, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, but he, he gives him a word of encouragement. And as you're going to see, Gideon does not consider himself a man of valor. Several times in the Old Testament, we read of the angel of the Lord, that phrase you may want to underline in your Bible. And he's differentiated, or, or, or he's compared to different angels, or not to a regular angel. The Bible dictionary notes, you'll see here again on the monitor, that these references show that the angel is the Lord himself adopting a visible form for the sake of speaking with his people. We had saw this several times in the past with Abraham. While himself is holy as God is holy, the angel expresses the Holy One's condensation or condescension to walk among sinners. Now this is an important picture, important type, as we're going to see these appearances of why Jesus appears at this day is part of the Old Testament preparation 
for Jesus. It's telling us that there is going to be a day when Jesus, when God himself, will walk among men. Now Gideon expresses his opinion that God is forsaking the covenant. Look at verse 13. He says, God, God has forsaken us. He wonders why this is happening. And this time, Gideon is trying to hide his wheat from the Midians. It's interesting that he points out that Yahweh's responsibility to faithfulness, but he neglects he and his tribe's uh, responsibility to remain faithful. So this is God's fault. You haven't been faithful. Yeah, we've been sinning, but that, that's not our fault. This is yours. You should have protected us. This is like so many of us who question and doubt God. Doubt is goodness and wisdom when we have to endure suffering many times from the consequences of our own disobedience. He actually accuses Yahweh of sin. As we move on in the conversation, we read in verse 14 that the angel of the Lord commissions Gideon to serve as the next judge, the deliverer of the people. However, as we move to verse 15, we see that Gideon is not jumping for joy at this prospect. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. Again, he's saying, you are a man of valor. You have might. He says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, Gideon says, How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, one of the tribes. And I am the least in my father's house. You say that I'm a man of valor. valor. You say that I'm a man of might. But I am not. I can't do these things. He doubts the very word of God. He doesn't even recognize that in verse 16, the Lord says, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Immediately, Gideon makes excuses of why he cannot be of service. He is the lowest of the weakest and he's not qualified to lead anyone. Pastor Vernon McGee notes that each of the judge, again on the monitor, were insignificant, insufficient, and inadequate in and of themselves. Each one had some aberration in his life. Each one of them had a glaring fault. We're going to see here that Gideon's was doubt. And sometimes that fault was the very reason that God chose them for, to use them. However, Gideon does not allow him, to, or God, excuse me, doesn't allow him in, to wallow in self-pity and self-denial or self-esteem. He corrects Gideon's misconception that he would have to go it alone, as I read before earlier in verse 16, that the Lord says, I will be with you. What wonderful words. I will be with you. In verse 17, Gideon asked for a sign. Then he asked for the Lord to tarry so that he might prepare a meal for him. As we move on to verse 19, Gideon prepares a young goat and unleavened cakes and he brings them out to cook them. So he kills a goat, he dresses, he skins it, he dresses it, he brings it out and says, now we need to cook it. The Lord then instructs Gideon to put the meat and the bread on a rock of all places. In verse 21, we read this. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and he Touch the meat and the unleavened bread. 
and the fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. What a, what a, what a interesting moment. Could you imagine Gideon like what in the world just happens here? Just as Moses with his staff is able to do miracles, just as God brings down fire for Elijah, he does a miracle to confirm and affirm and to prop up Gideon. The Lord follows up this miracle and Gideon's worship by calling him to obedience. As you can see, Gideon begins to Worship, but then he, God calls them to obedience. Now that I have encouraged you, affirmed you, now that I've shown that I will be with you, now that I've shown that, that there's a miracle, I need you to do something for me. It's kind of like a, a test. This is not to attack the Midianites, but he's going to attack his own household. The Lord follows up by, by calling him to obedience. In verse 25, he is commanded to take a bull and pull down the altar of Baal that his father had and replace it with an altar to the Lord. This is interesting. Just like Abraham, Gideon comes from a family that worships false gods. Why God is using Gideon at this point is beyond us. However, God has. He then is to take the bull after he pulls down the altar. Then he is to sacrifice it, kill it, and then sacrifice it on the altar that he builds. Gideon, as we read, faithfully obeys, though the recorder of this event notes that Gideon was still fearful to do so by himself. So he took 10 of his servants to help him. Now, this is a triumphal night for Gideon as he faithfully obeys God despite his fears. Despite his fear, he was still able to enroll men to help him with this dangerous task. This shows that he has some leadership capabilities. In verses 28 through 32, we read that the men of the village were outraged and they sought to kill Gideon for his actions. But his father now, the worshiper of Baal, shows courage as we read in verse 31. Go down to verse 31. But Joash, Gideon's father, said to all those who stood against Gideon, Will you contend for Baal? Are you going to stand up for a false god? Or will you save Baal? Does a god need you to save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because it's his altar that has been broken down. This kind of echoes what's going to happen with Elijah. And his supernatural cosmic battle that we see in the book of Kings. It's interesting. The Lord follows up this miracle in that way. But as we move to verse 33, we read that the time of harvest has finally arrived. And the Midianites and Amalekites, along with some other people of the east, those who lived across the Jordan River, they finally crossed the river and assembled, preparing to pillage the land and rob the Hebrews of the food and the animal stock. You can almost imagine the frustration and fear of the Israelites as they tried to hide their supplies and prepare for an attack. They knew that they could not win. Wondering, where was Yahweh? Why doesn't he hear our cry? We have been suffering for seven years. Where is he? Where is he faithful? How is he faithful? Has God heard their cry? Has he remembered them? Does he know them? 
Does he remember his promises? Who will stand up for us? Which of the men of the tribes will finally stand up and deliver us from these men? But as you and I go to verse 34, we read this wonderful first phrase. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. You may want to just underline that. So we need to realize when God calls and commissions us, He doesn't send us alone. He clothes us, so to speak, with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't send us out naked to fight Satan and his schemes. He doesn't leave us defenseless in this world. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 14 through 17. I do not leave them alone, but I'm going to give you the comforter so that we do not face these things alone. Yes, God calls him a man of valor. He calls him a man of might. He has shown some of his mettle by, by, by even in his fear, courageously tearing down that altar. But yet now the time comes for him to go. And God does not send him out alone. But the Spirit of the, God, uh, the, Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, verse 34, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizrites who, co- who were called out to follow him, and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to the other tribes, Asher, Zebulun, and Ephelia, and they went up to meet him. So he is able to call these men to join him. Once again, the Lord commissions and provides a deliverer for his people. As the call goes out for warriors, we read that the men responded, grabbing whatever weapons they may have, leaving their families and farms and proceeding to the agreed-upon staging area. Let me just say real quick, let me put just a note in there. When there is godly leadership, men will follow. Where there is godly leadership, women would follow. This is what we need in our homes, is men who will stand up and lead in a godly way. We need our leaders, political, whether they're political, industrial, whatever it needs, we need men who are godly, who are standing up. And you may say, well, I am fearful to do this because I am not a man of valor. I am not a man of might, and I cannot go it alone. But I tell you that the Spirit of God will come upon us. And God will send us his remnant. Again, I speak of Elijah earlier. When he was uh, bemoaning his state and felt all alone after that great victory, God says, listen, I have these minutes. I always have a remnant. We are not alone. But he's looking like the Marines for a few good men, some good godly men to stand up, some good godly women to stand up whether it's leading in our homes, serving in our homes, in our marriages, or in our world. Much of what we see happening in the United States, in California, in our community, is a lack of godly leadership. We talked about that in our introduction. You can find that on the website if you missed it. We have a lack of godly leadership. But what a change of attitude here with Gideon. Finally, someone is doing something. A godly leader has been appointed and accepted, and he's ready to lead God's people to battle, to end their seven-year struggle and suffering. However, just as Gideon rises up to the occasion, like many of us, he has another battle of doubt. Gideon has another battle with his confidence and commitment as we read in verse 36. This part of the story is 
very famous and familiar to many. You've probably read about it in children's. It's in children's books. But look at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have sowed. And it was so. And when he arose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill the bowl, the bowl of water. So he just, just you know, don't, don't let the ground be wet, just let the fleece. Now any of us know that, many of us know that if you get up early in the morning, you're going to go outside, and even though it may not have rained, what will we find on the grass? Dew. It's just God's way of renewing things. And so he says, could you imagine your grass, okay, imagine, and you put a blanket out there in the, at night. When you come up in the morning, what would be around your grass and on your blanket? Dew. It'd be what? It'd be wet. And you would take it and you would do this and you would wring it out. But could you imagine going out there and your, your blanket was all wet, but the ground around it was dry. You would think something weird was going on, right? It'd be strange. But then go on. Because that was not enough for Gideon. That was not a miracle enough. Then Gideon said to God in verse 39, Let not your anger burn against me. Now hold that thought. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. So reverse it. Let everything else be wet, but let the blanket, the fleece, be dry. Verse 40, And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. In both cases, this would be a miracle that God suspends the law of nature to prove to Gideon that he has God's favor and to ease his doubt and to give him confidence and courage. He suspends the law of nature to, to encourage this one man. Now, unfortunately, in my opinion, this test has been used to teach that God's children are to put out fleeces to discover God's will. Has anyone ever heard that phrase? I remember you and I talked about this years and years ago. I don't remember the context, but we talked, you ever heard that? Put out a fleece, see what it is God's will. And so what we do is we say, well, God, if you want me to marry this man, then make this happen. Or God, if it's your will that I have this job, make this happen. Show it and test me that which way you want me to go. And so we have many Christians who say, put out a fleece. However, I think that what he's doing here is actually sinful. I don't think this type of thinking is biblical. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 29. That gives me an opportunity to get a drink of water and also for you to find it. Deuteronomy, fifth book in the Old Testament. We're going to look at verse 29. Chapter 29, verse 29. Because here's something we need to understand about the will of God. I think this is a good question. Should we be putting out fleeces? Should we be asking God and testing God? When God has given us a command, when he has told us to do something, should we put out fleeces to find out if this is truly what God wants us to do? Are you guys there? 29, 29 of Deuteronomy? 
In this passage, Yahweh declares that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. How long? Forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, I just want to give you a hint. You need to probably box this out in your Bible. This verse is a very important verse that shares with us an important doctrine. So you may want to note this so you can have this. This is great for counseling. This is great for instructing, for discipline, uh, disciplining and discipleship, and just people who are looking for God's will. Paul Tripp, he is a biblical counselor. In writing on Gideon and on this verse, he writes, I am deeply persuaded that there are many Christians, listen to this, living in fear, anxiety, and confusion because they do not know what the will of God is for their life. They're trying to figure out what is it that God wants me to do. Am I to be married? Am I go to college? Am I, should I buy this house? Should I buy this car? Should I do this? Should I do that? And they're just so with, filled with fear and anxiety and they are just paralyzed not knowing what to do because they do not know what the will of God. And so they are taught, well, like Gideon, put out a fleece and see what happens. God, if you want me to marry this man, I pray that lightning would come from the land in three seconds. One, two, three. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. Hit the road. Or we continually do something else. He asked, are you constantly searching for hints or clues about what God is doing? Are you worried that you're not at the exact place where God wants you? Do you find it hard to make decisions because you're not sure what God's will is? Do you struggle to, to rest with the decisions you've made because you think you might have made a mistake? Anyone done that? I've done any big purchase I've ever done. Oh my goodness, what did I just do? Tripp continues, I think many Christians make the mistake of acting on what they can never be sure of rather than relying on what they can know for sure. In other words, Christians confuse God's secret will with his revealed will. will. Look, at, look on the screen here real quickly. Wayne Grumman defines God's secret will, as we read in Deuteronomy 29-29, as God's secret will usually includes his hidden decrees by which he governs the universe and determines everything that will happen. Remember, we believe the Bible teaches us that God is sovereign over all things. There is no accidents or coincidences in your life. When you roll the dice, Scripture says that God determines where it will land. If you're thinking you're going to play the lotto, it's God who determines whether your numbers are going to hit or not. There is no luck. There is no coincidences. All things have been determined before the beginning of time. But what we need to recognize is that many times we're saying that, who am I to marry? Where am I going to go to college? Or should I do this? We're, we're thinking about all the things that God has hidden from us, the things that we do not know. Give me an example. I've used this at, at Jake's wedding. You know, 20 years ago, 21 years almost, years ago, we, we moved from Illinois to California when the kids were young. And, and I remember, you know, not everyone was happy. Jake struggled with that for a while because we were leaving his friends. We were leaving all of our families. We were going to be out here by ourselves. And, of course, we moved. Don and I made that decision for our family for many different reasons, which I'm not going to go into. But as our kids grew and became adults here, we find that, uh, that they find their mate and get married. And I remember saying at Jake's wedding, listen, you may have wondered why we moved here 20 years ago. 
But now I know that we made, made different decisions on what we thought we were supposed to do. But in the end, God moved us to California, to Orange, so that you could meet the wife that he prepared for you before the beginning of time. And the same would be for Brandon and Paige and for you. Is that God has ordained all moments. These things, though, are secret to us. And the problem is you and I are always grabbing some type of spiritual can opener, trying to open a can of secret will. And, and you're never going to find out. God's secret will is found by hindsight, typically. However, God's revealed will, which he says in Deuteronomy 29, is that he has revealed his will. There are some things he has told us very clearly as he tells Gideon, go and deliver your people. That was not a secret. He has showed him many times and proven who he is and that Gideon was that man, but Gideon wants a secret. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I believe it might be here on the screen. Thank you, Ben. The disciple writes that his divine power, speaking of Christ, has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, which he has granted to us by his precious and very great promises, that through them you may be became, become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world because of sinful desires. So you and I have God's revealed word through what? Through scriptures. Now, in Gideon's case, Jesus himself came down and had a meal with them. Did a couple miracles and said, now go do it. Wouldn't it be great if God did that to us? It'd be nice if Jesus would come down and say, Rob, put his hand on my shoulder. Let's eat. I want to lay out what I need you to do. You're a man of valor. You're a man of might. And you know what? I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I wish that was the case. But he hasn't. But he has revealed in his word that I'm to love my wife. I am to serve with honor and distinction. I'm to be a man who loves his family, who loves his children, who serves God in his generation. You see, God has revealed to us what you and I are to do. We do not need to send out a fleece Oh, my wife, you don't understand her. Should I love her? What does the Bible say? Well, <laughs> Pastor, I got to put out a fleece on this one. And so what we do, we go to our buddies. Oh, man, you got to understand my wife. Or let's do our spouse. Let's make it easy. Look at my spouse. Man, you don't understand how hard it is living with him or her. I don't know. What, and so all of a sudden, we put out fleeces with friends. And they start giving us their advice. Think of Job. He sent out a fleece. And all of his friends started giving him all sorts of terrible, terrible answers. And that many times the fleeces were sitting out and the people were asking to do the thing are ungodly themselves. They have no knowledge of God. And then you wonder why Christians are just falling apart and, and following advice of people who are not biblical. You and I are called to submit to God's revealed will in all things without doubting, along with resting in his secret will. So let me say it again. You and I are submit to God's will, revealed will, in all things without question, without doubting, along with resting 
and trusting in his secret will. Those things he has not told us. Trusting that God in his wisdom and goodness that all things will work out to good to those that are called to Christ Jesus. Amen? This is you and I. Theologian Miles Van Pelt comments on this passage of the fleece. That the purpose of the sign is to help God's people do his revealed will. Not merely to help them discover it. The same is true for Christian life today. When it comes to the will of God for his people, there is no guesswork, only homework. If it is God's will for us that we should be sanctified, or it is God's will for us that we should be sanctified. It is God's will for us that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. It is God's will that we should love our enemies, forgive those who wrong us, and be generous with our resources. You do not have to ask. You just need to obey. Jesus told us that whoever does the will of God is his very brother, sister, and mother. And the Apostle John wrote that whoever does the will of God abides forever. When we pray, it is thy, thy will be done, it is easy to know the will of God. It is hard to do it. I will say that. It is hard to do the revealed will of God. So what sign do we have that will help us do the will of God? If we're not to be like Gideons and throw down fleeces, what sign that I know that I should trust in him and rest in him? It's very simple. We have the sign of the cross. What we deserve because of our sin, we have because of our sin, And the resurrection, what we receive because of God's grace. But the fleece of the cross does not simply encourage obedience to God's will. It is the ultimate act of obedience to God's will as Jesus submitted to the Father. It's applied to us forever. Something Gideon's fleece or Moses' signs could never do. So should we be throwing out fleeces? No. Should we ask for godly advice when we are unsure? Yes. Let's take the, uh, hey, should I love my spouse? Should I submit to my husband? I'm just struggling with them. There is nothing wrong with going to a godly friend and saying, I just, I want to do this. I just don't know how to do this. I don't know that I'm strong enough to do this. That's when a godly friend comes in and shares with us through Scripture where we supply what's lacking in their faith. So you and I are not to send out fleeces unless we think of fleeces as asking for godly advice. But in the end, if it isn't God's revealed will, you and I need to obey. Just real quickly, if you're thinking about who to marry, should I go to college? Should I buy a house? Should I rent? There's godly principles that help us make that decision. Unfortunately, we don't want the homework of finding the biblical principles. We typically just want something to happen. So we look for signs. We look for butterflies in our stomach. You know, We look at how we feel when we're near them. And I have to tell you, as one uh, secular radio show says, your feelings lie to you. Facts don't care about your feelings. Is that the phrase? We need to understand that. Your feelings are just as fallen as your, as your minds. And so we need to recognize that. One theologian notes, though, that even in his doubt, and here's a word of encouragement, because you and I are Gideons, okay? 
not in the might, but we are Gideons in our doubting and our fear and our reluctance in serving God. All of us are. And you say, but I struggle with doubting God. I struggle with accepting his word that I am more than a conqueror or that I'm to go out and witness, or that I'm to love, that I'm forgive. This is difficult for me. I, I don't know if I can do it. Many times we can be so down on Gideon for his lack of faith. One theologian writes that even in his doubting, God shows Gideon grace. He writes this, Gideon's two requests for signs in the fleece should be viewed as weak faith. Okay, it is weak faith. Even Gideon recognizes this when he said, remember I said, remember this, this phrase, let not your anger burn against me. He knew he was asking for what he should not ask for. He said once, do this, God says, okay. Then he asks God again, God says, all right. Let not your anger burn against me. Since God had already specifically promised his presence and victory multiple times before. But they were also legitimate requests for confirmation of victory against seemingly impossible odds. He goes and write that God nowhere reprimanded Gideon, but was very compassionate in giving what his inadequacy requested. Listen to this. God volunteered a sign to boost Gideon's faith. He should have believed God's promises, but he needed bolstering. He needed an uplift. So God graciously gave it without chastisement. Let me, in this case, even when you're doubting and fear, God still offers his grace. Even in our weakness, he comes beside us. Even in our disobedience, God is willing to forgive us and to restore us. Amen? What a wonderful God we have. What we're seeing in this story of Gideon is a man who, who is mighty in valor, who has might, but he doesn't believe it. Commissioned by God, God says, I'm going with you, but still the doubts, the fears, the reluctance he sends to bring him down. And we're going to see that it continues at least one or two more times. In the end, it winds up being a downfall for him and his family, unfortunately. However, God still uses him. He'll still use you. In many ways, Gideon is like Moses and Jeremiah in their initial reluctance and self-doubt. You remember that Moses said, I can't speak. So he says, well, I'll send Aaron to speak for you. Well, I can't do this. Well, I have no power. Well, here's a staff. You can do miracles with it. Time and time. Moses tried to get out. Jeremiah, the same way, the weeping prophet. I'm just a young man. I can't do this. He served God in a mighty way in his generation. Suffered much for it. Today, many of us are infected with this same attitude. There may be some of you here today that are reluctant. You don't want to be an ambassador for God. You don't want to be a fragrance of God. You don't, you don't want to be one who's commissioned and given authority to make disciples and to teach. We struggle to believe that God can or would want to use us for his purposes. Who am I? There's no way that God would use me. I'm the least of my people and I'm the weakest. There's no way. We make excuses about why we can't serve, why we can't share the gospel or get involved or join the church and be involved and serve. Our doubt causes us to question God's word. We question his love for us and his plan for us. 
Yet from this passage, we can be assured that God does not use, or that God does use, excuse me, even the least and the weakest to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for the good of his people. This past Thursday, Matthew Skaggs reminded me of the phrase, God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the call. There's much truth to this slogan. Instead of doubting God and asking for multiple signs until we obey, we should rest and find confidence and courage in remind and remembering how he has provided for us in the past. We should jump at every opportunity to serve him, delight in discovering his found will, his revealed will in his word. We must be reminded that he has created us, that he has brought us through life. And yes, that life may be difficult. There, must be, uh, there may be uh, times where we've had to endure suffering, but God has always been with us. Hindsight shows that. God gives his children reassurance, comfort, and strength as we endure suffering. Even when the suffering comes from the consequences of our own sin, when we repent, confess, and cry out for forgiveness. Once again, I go to Miles Van Pelt. He writes that the big picture in this passage, you see it here on the screen, is that when God saves us, he is careful to make clear that he has done the work for us or he has done for us what we could not do ourselves. When we are weak, he is strong. When we've come to know the core of our building, of our being, that God alone is our refuge and strength, our fear is turned into worship and the idols in our lives can finally be dislodged from our hearts. May God strengthen us this morning that we may cast aside all the fears and doubts and boldly obey his word in defiance of all circumstances and consequences knowing that if God is for us, then no one can be against us. Amen? And let me be reminded as we point out, is that Gideon may be a reluctant warrior. You may be a reluctant warrior for God's army. But let me share with you that Jesus Christ himself is not a reluctant warrior. But he willingly came to seek and to save the lost. Commissioned by the Father, he never doubted the Father's command to redeem his children from the oppression of sin and Satan by giving his life on the cross. And so as we remember Gideon, let us also remember that he is an antitype or the type of Christ, though not reluctant, but one who did what you and I many times are fearful to do, obeying the will of God. Let us do so this morning. Not reluctantly, but as a good soldier of Christ, knowing that he has called us and equipped us for this good work. Amen? Let's bow our heads, if you would, as the worship team comes up. As Randy makes his way for pastor's prayer. I just want to encourage you this morning. Now, there's maybe some good information that you didn't know before. Maybe there's some things that challenge your thinking. But in the end, it's not about information Trans, uh, information transfer but it's about transformation I pray that you take a moment to pause and consider the life of Gideon his doubts, his fears his reluctancy but also consider that God is always with us and that God in his grace is with us not only in our strength but more so in our weakness and that when God calls us God commissions he equips and empowers us for his work. Would you pray? Then ask God how he's done that for you and respond to the Holy Spirit's work.
and serve God in your generation. Amen? Randy, would you come? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.